0: Thank you to join Mike for leading us today. Appreciate those songs. I invite you to turn in your Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. And after today, we'll be in John probably another week, maybe two. I do plan to switch it up as we get closer to Christmas time. John chapter 7, end of chapter 7. Also want to mention... uh, Breaking news, we decided a few minutes ago that tonight's Sunday night study we're actually not going to do just because there are so many cases in town. Um, Pretty much everybody who doesn't go to church here in town has it. Um, And really, truly, we have been, uh, we've been very blessed as a church. Uh, And so praise the Lord for that, uh, for his, really his protection for us for, what, eight months? And uh, so pray that that continues and... Um, it's great to see you guys this morning. Carrie's not here today. Her, uh, her sister Rachel is going to be induced tomorrow uh, with, with a baby baby girl. This will be Rachel's third. Uh, so, definitely, if you could pray for them, Carrie's going to be traveling down to Alabama for a few days. And uh, they're going to name her Mila, which I like. I suggested Joshina. And, um, but I think it works. I think it works for a girl. Uh, Um, So yeah, end of John chapter 7 again So we're not doing our Sunday night study this evening uh, Just being cautious and trying to be wise Uh, I'll send out a message on one call about that too uh, And I'll read our text here this morning They went each to his own house But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives Early in the morning he came again to the temple All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, in the law Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus said, Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we continue to pray for our nation in this tumultuous time. Lord, may we look to you as our rock and salvation. May we not be burdened by this election cycle, but may we be focused on you. Lord, regardless of what happens, may we continue to pray for revival around the world, in our nation, and in our community. May we reach people with the love of Christ and with your gospel. Lord, and may that be a burden on our hearts. May we be drawn to you in greater holiness. May we be sanctified by you and have a greater love for you and for your people. Lord, I also pray for our community, as we have seen increases of COVID in recent weeks. Lord, by your grace, we have never had significant issues with COVID in this church, and we praise you for that. Lord, we continue to ask for your protection. May we exercise wisdom in our decisions. Lord, I pray for our health. Lord, people who are infected with this virus, we pray for them and their recovery. Lord, I also would like to pray for for Pam Armstrong, Lord. I thank you for what she does in serving our community, Lord, and we just want to lift her up this morning and pray for her and for a full recovery and for her health. Lord, I pray for her family. I'm sure this is a very stressful time for them. Lord, I do want to pray for our medical care providers who have spent months on the front lines battling COVID. We pray for them and for their safety. Lord, I'd like to pray for my sister-in-law Rachel and Her baby Mila that's coming into the world tomorrow. Lord, I thank you for the gift that she is. I just want to pray for a a healthy delivery and for safe travels for Carrie and her parents down to Alabama. Lord, I also would like to pray this week as Veterans Day is upon us. Lord, I thank you for those who have served our great nation. Lord, I thank you for veterans here we have at our church and throughout our whole country. Lord, I praise you for people who have Defended the freedoms that we have as a nation. Lord, we ask that you bless our time and your word this morning. May our hearts and minds be focused on you and your word. And on worshiping you, our great God. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's the last verse of chapter 7 into chapter 8. And your Bible probably has brackets around the section with a note saying something to the effect that this passage was not part of the earliest manuscripts. Something like that. There's a lot that can be said about this subject, but I wanted to start this morning by giving a few notes on how we got our Bibles and why we can trust our Bibles. The printing press was invented around the year 1440. So you have a gap of more than 1,400 years between the time of Christ and the invention of the printing press, where there is one and only one way to copy a text, and that was to write it out by hand. Now, in the couple of generations after Jesus died and rose, the books of the New Testament were written, and they were copied, and the copies were copied. Thousands of fragments and copies of books and of the New Testament exist from ancient times now the earliest pieces we have are verses from books not entire books for the scribes who did the copying we owe them a tremendous debt of gratitude they had an incredibly difficult and tedious job verse by verse word by word copying books of the bible But these scribes were just men, they were not perfect, and sometimes mistakes were made. Now, that shouldn't be a discouragement, because the encouraging thing is we see the great care that they took in accuracy in copying the Bible. And the encouraging fact is that the vast majority of these scribal variations or variants are minor issues. Maybe there's a switch where the original text that they're copying from says Jesus Christ, and they switch it to Christ Jesus. That doesn't affect anything. Or Greek uses the word the a lot, like more than English. Sometimes the will be before and after a word in Greek. That makes no sense in English. Sometimes they'll leave out a the. Sometimes they'll misspell a word. Or sometimes words have more than one spelling. It's like that in English, and it can be that way in Greek. So those are the types of differences that are most of these variations that we see. So again, overwhelmingly, minor changes. None of the changes really make significant impact on the overall meaning of the text. There are no variations that totally change the theological meaning of passages. And that's good news. And again, that should be an encouragement to the trustworthiness that we have in the Bibles that we read. That we have a long, scribal tradition of people who took the work very seriously. They put tremendous care into copying the texts. Now, in the 19th century, scholars began comparing all of the known biblical manuscripts. They considered the age of the manuscript the Weight of manuscript evidence in favor of a given verse, things like that, among other criteria. And from that, they produced a New Testament that was basically a product of all of the existing copies and sources for the New Testament. That work has been updated over the last century plus, but it is that work and that Greek New Testament which is the basis for essentially all modern English translations of the New Testament. The exception being the King James and New King James versions, which come from a different scribal philosophy. With that, we come to our passage in John chapter 8. And there are several reasons why most translations are so specific in blocking off this section and making notes about the text. I'm going to give a few of those reasons very briefly. First, this passage is absent from all known manuscripts of John prior to the 5th century. Second, when the early church theologians comment on this overarching passage of John 7 and 8, they never mention this passage. Third, from the Eastern Orthodox church fathers, none of them ever mentioned this passage Prior to the 10th century. Fourth, when the story does start to appear, it's located in several different places. Fifth, the passage doesn't actually fit into the section that we're in in John. And by that, I mean John chapter 7, Jesus is at the Feast of Booths. When we left off, Jesus is speaking on the last day of the Feast of Booths. This story totally interrupts that and changes the day, but then when we go back to verse 12, Jesus is again at the Feast of Booths. Sixth, Greek scholars point out that some of the language in this passage is not consistent with the rest of John, and in certain places resembles other gospel-writing language. And so the conclusion of Many of the finest biblical scholars in the world, conservative biblical scholars who hold up the word of God, who know that the Bible is God's inerrant word, see this as evidence that this story is not original to John. All of that being said, many scholars believe that the event itself is a true event that actually took place in the ministry of Jesus. But is it original? And if it's not original, is it Scripture? I think it should be said that there are people on both sides of this issue. Was it original? Was it not? There are people on both sides of that discussion who love God, who love the Bible, and who are sincerely trying to be accurate in their approach to the Word of God. But it leaves us with a question. How do we approach a text like this? Some pastors won't even preach this section. I like John Piper's approach that he's taken. And that is to look at the passage and the points that it makes, and then to support those points from other places in Scripture, because ultimately this passage is teaching truth. And so with that, we'll jump into this passage, this well-known event in the ministry of Jesus this morning, And we'll begin in chapter 7, verse 53, the last verse of chapter 7, where it says, They went each to his own house. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And so the beginning of this passage is setting the scene But as Jesus is teaching, he's interrupted. Verse 3 The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And this is the first point that I want to focus on this morning the woman caught in adultery. The first thing that's noteworthy in this story is that they bring a woman caught in adultery. Something's missing. They didn't bring the woman whom they had heard committed adultery. They brought the woman who was caught in adultery. So she was caught in the act. But there's an issue. Where is the man? In Jewish law, capital adultery charges were not based on rumor or hearsay. You had to be caught in the act. But the fact that it's just the woman and not the man, leads to one of two possibilities. D.A. Carson suggests, I think half-jokingly in this commentary, that maybe the man was a faster runner. Or, the more common view is that this woman was set up by some of the ruling authorities who had hatched a plot to catch her in the act. And they do this not because of a desire for justice or because they're primarily concerned with holiness or because they're even really concerned about the woman. But it's because they hate Jesus and want to try to use this situation to make a mockery of Christ. What do I mean? Let's continue reading verses 4 and 5. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses... Sorry, I keep saying that. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Adultery is certainly a very serious sin against God and against one's spouse. And it's serious in this passage. It's a sin with... It completely undermines the sacred bond of marriage. It destroys marriages and families. It's a sin of lust, of weakness, and of selfishness. I said a moment ago, but in the Old Testament, adultery was a capital offense. Deuteronomy 22.22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. And so the people who had caught this woman point to the law and suggest that the appropriate punishment for this woman is death. And they come to Jesus asking for his input in the situation. It's a trap. Again, they're seeking to undermine Jesus, they've created this theological dilemma for Jesus. He could pass the buck, have them take the woman to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court. If he says she should be forgiven, they'll accuse him of not following the law of Moses. If he says she should be stoned, they'll say he's contradicted his own message of grace and forgiveness. Our passage establishes this in verse 6 where it says, They said this to test him. That they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus responds, first without words, but with an action. The second part of verse 6 Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. What he was writing has been the subject of much debate and speculation. Some think that he's writing out the sins. Of these Jewish authorities. Some think that he's writing out the Ten Commandments. Some think that he's writing other Old Testament passages about the law. Ultimately, we don't know. I mentioned in the beginning that many scholars don't believe that this passage is original to the Gospel of John. But I'll also say again that many of those scholars believe that this event is a true story. And that it really happened. And this writing in the dirt is part of why I believe this really happened. Tim Keller brings up this point. Why is this included in the story? Jesus is writing in the ground. We never find out what. It contributes nothing to the story. If you were to make up a story, if you were to invent a story why would you have a detail of the story that's absolutely meaningless to the story? Instead, I believe that it really happened, and the writing in the dirt is mentioned because it really happened from the person who saw it happen. Verse 7. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left with the woman standing before him. So it appears to be a combination of what Jesus was writing and his words that have totally flipped the script. A couple things to consider about the story. When Jesus says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone? Is he saying that to judge her sin, you have to be morally perfect? That's the way the story is often interpreted. Everyone knows this verse. Everyone knows the Bible says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And the verse everyone knows, almost everyone gets wrong. And not just this verse. Our society knows lots of Bible verses about judgment. Matthew 7.1, judge not that you not be judged. Same passage, Matthew 7.4, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye where there is a log in your own eye? We like verses as a society that speak against judgment because our society has decided that the absence of judgment is love. And to judge someone is seen as unloving. Is it a sin to judge someone? Consider those passages in Matthew. How can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? But then the following verse says, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will clearly take the speck, and then you will clearly see to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What these verses are saying is that every one of us is a work in progress, and that we need to also work on ourselves and our own holiness as we help and challenge and exhort others to holiness. It is not saying that we can never make a moral judgment at any time. In the previous chapter, Jesus said in John 7:24, "Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment." The Bible clearly teaches in multiple ways that we are to have moral discernment and views of the world influenced by the word of God. There are Bible verses that talk about avoiding sin, which implies an awareness of what is and is not sinful so that we can avoid sin. 2 Thessalonians 3.16 says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ... That you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the traditions that you received from us. There are Bible passages that serve as warnings of false teachers in the church. To recognize a false teacher, you have to have opinions on the biblical validity of someone's message. Matthew 7 that I've just quoted from verses 15 and 17. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. To be able to do that requires us to have moral understanding, which is grounded in the truth of God. We have Bible verses about exhorting people to live up to biblical standards. Hebrews 10:24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. 1 Thessalonians 5:11. Therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This requires us to have a sense of what is sin and what is not. Now, there are some guiding principles Because we should never judge someone for its own sake. It should always be in the hope of seeing a person repent. Love should undergird everything we do. And it can be done in a loving way. The biblical view is that sin is not arbitrary. But sin is sin because it is an affront to God And it is an action against God's righteousness, holiness, and truth. And the best way to live life is in accordance with God's truth. When we sin, we are living against His truth, and therefore, that is not a path that leads to flourishing. But we should want that, both for ourselves and for others. And it's a challenge grace and law. Because I think most of us have a tendency to lean more on one side of that than the other. Some of us are more on the side of law. We're rule followers, rule enforcers. And for that person, the temptation is to be puffed up and self-righteous. I'm not saying everybody I'm saying that's the temptation we face. We can forget our own sinfulness and need for grace when we do that. But if we go exclusively to the side of grace... We can have a tendency and a risk of forgetting about God's call to holiness in our lives. And in that, build a worldview that becomes apathetic to sin. Both extremes are problematic. Back in our passage, Jesus has been writing. He says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. We always think that this is a story about grace. But is that really what's happening here? John and Paul Paul Feinberg have a fascinating analysis of this passage in their book, Ethics for a Brave New World, where they look at this passage in the light of Old Testament laws. The trial of this woman is illegal. For starters... Old Testament standards for capital offenses were very stringent. It wasn't, as it is in America, a matter of guilt beyond reasonable doubt. You had to have total certainty to somebody's guilt. Capital punishment for adultery was probably actually very rare in Israel. Because clearly an accusation can be made. But to bring it up on capital charges, you needed multiple witnesses. Deuteronomy 17.6 says, On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And the witnesses would be cross-examined and their stories had to corroborate each other. Also, it should be noted that in the Old Testament, perjury against somebody for a capital offense was itself a capital offense. And we see both, both of these ideas, cross-examination and the punishment for perjury in Deuteronomy 19. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in the office in those days, the judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother, shall, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. And as a reminder, the law required that in cases of adultery, both of the guilty parties needed to be executed. Leviticus 20:10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. The law, so they don't have the man here in violation of the law. The law required a public trial. That's not what this is, it's a mob bringing this woman to Jesus. The law also required right motives for a trial. This was a matter of the heart. But you weren't supposed to accuse someone out of malice. Exodus chapter 23, verse 1. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Also, the entrapment of this woman would have been sinful. The Israelites were supposed to keep each other from sinning. Not lie in wait so you could catch someone sinning. So let's summarize all of this. We like to look at this story as if it's the supreme example of grace in the Bible. And it's a story about court procedural violations. The religious leaders want to come to Jesus with a legal case. And we see Jesus follows the law even more rigidly than they do. Because Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He says that in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus never says in this story that the woman does not deserve death. But when he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone, Jesus has exposed the sins or sinful motivations of these accusers, and they leave. He's exposed their unwillingness to truly back up what they're claiming or to truly be the first one to stand up against somebody for a capital crime. And so they leave. Did the woman commit adultery? Probably. There's never any indication that that part of the story is untrue. But Jesus has intervened in this mistrial. Jesus will later on be a victim himself of an improper trial. We'll talk about that more when we get there. But there were illegalities in the trial for Jesus. But unlike for this woman, Jesus would be legally convicted, illegally convicted, and not have an advocate. But it's because Jesus died as an innocent man that the guilty can be forgiven. That is at the heart of the gospel. Back in our passage... Those who oppose Jesus have thought that they had such a brilliant trap for him, and it fails. And so they leave. They don't care about the woman. They don't care about what she did. And so they leave, and Jesus and the woman remain. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one come to condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Yes, we do see grace from Jesus. According to the law in this situation, he also could not have brought charges against her because he wasn't a witness to the crime. But ultimately, Jesus' purpose for coming into the world was salvation. John 3.17, Jesus says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus doesn't bring down the hammer. Throughout the Gospels, we see people coming to Jesus in their sins, or Jesus showing awareness of their sins. And the main point of this passage is the law and Jesus' adherence to the law and his honor for the law. But again, that doesn't mean that grace is absent from the story. Because Jesus is gracious to sinners. And we too should be. It can be so easy to be cynical about the world, about sin, about people. It can be so easy to judge others, to judge their hearts and motivations, when we don't know people's hearts and motivations and experiences. We need to ask ourselves when we feel tempted to be judgmental about someone. Is it out of pride? Is it to feel better about ourselves and our own sinfulness? Or is it out of a righteous desire to see God honored? Is it out of a righteous love for what is just and good? Is it out of a righteous love for sinful people and desire to see their salvation and repentance and sanctification? We should ask ourselves those questions because it can be easy and for some even enjoyable to be snarky and critical. Is judgment sinful? It is when we feel like we're better than someone or look down on them. It is when it blinds us to our own sinfulness. It's not when we see a person's life isn't honoring Christ and isn't bringing them towards the love and life that are in Christ. At the end of the passage, Jesus says to the woman, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. He doesn't condemn her but he does call her to holiness. From now on, sin no more. Jesus is gracious, but he never ever affirms sin. He never celebrates sin. He never says sin is good or doesn't matter. His death shows that it matters. He didn't die for us because our sins weren't all that bad or because they weren't that big a deal. He is gracious when we sin, and we should rejoice in that. But Jesus also calls us to holiness, and for that we should also rejoice. Because a righteous life, a life dedicated to God, is the best way to live. There is forgiveness when we sin, because we have a Savior. Our world likes to think that the absence of judgment is love. Jesus shows us love. He gave us life to redeem sinners. Jesus shows us love because he points us to real life. And in pointing to the life to which Jesus called us, Jesus desires our holiness because he loves us. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we have a righteous Savior. Lord, Lord, May this story be an example to us of the salvation that Jesus brings and the life that he desires us to live. Lord, let us remember this story as a picture of the gospel, that Jesus was unjustly tried and convicted of crimes he didn't commit, never sinned. Lord, but he went to the cross for sinful people so that we could be with him. Lord, I continue to pray for our community with this virus, for our health and safety. Lord, I pray for this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.